We come now to the pinnacle of a worship service where we humble ourselves before the study of the Word of God. And I would encourage you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. And I've entitled my discourse, Growing in Grace and in Knowledge. And indeed, we will understand that as we examine the text before us, as we continue to go verse by verse through Luke's historical account of the early church. And what a wonderful study it has been for us and will continue to be. Let me read the text this morning. We will go from verse 18 to verse 7 of chapter 19. Acts 18, beginning in verse 18. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sincrea he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he departed and passed successively through the Galatian and region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, The brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. It has been my privilege over the years to spend a lot of time around horses and to spend, especially in the last 10 years or so, around people that know horses in ways exceedingly better than I do. And I have learned much from them, and every time I'm around them, I realize how much more I have to learn. 
But it is interesting that whenever I'm around people typically who have horses, it's as though everyone considers themselves an expert. And everyone seems to insist that their horses are well broke. After all, a kid could ride on them. And many times you will see a child riding on a horse and you think, boy, isn't that wonderful? That horse must really be broke. But if you, as an adult and a horseman, ask that horse to yield to a certain form of pressure, unlike a child would ask that horse to yield, you will find very quickly that that horse is not even remotely broke. And he will begin to do all kinds of bad things And we discover very quickly that the bad habits and bad manners of that horse makes that, quote, kid broke horse a very, very dangerous animal. And many times in horse circles, you will hear people say that horse is green broke or that horse has a lot of holes in his program. And then what you have to do is begin to work with that horse to somehow fill in the holes in his program. Now, I give you that little illustration To help you understand that many times we as Christians have a lot of holes in our program. We think we're pretty well broke. We think we kind of got everything in order that we kind of know what the word of God says about various things. But lots of times we don't. Let me ask you, have you ever considered how much you don't know about what you believe? Have you ever wondered if maybe your understanding of certain doctrinal truths just might be deficient? I know it's a humbling thing as a pastor over the years. You spend much time in the word of God every week, and I find continually how little I know. It's really a remarkable thing. Well, obviously, we are convinced of what we believe or we wouldn't believe it. But what happens when you suddenly discover that you're wrong about a particular doctrinal truth? Or what happens when you find that your grasp of a particular theological subject is woefully inadequate? Are you teachable or are you defensive? You know, three words that are very hard for us to say are these. I was wrong. It's a hard pill to swallow. And it's sad that many times Christians have a very superficial grasp of major doctrines. And as a result, there will typically be a shallowness in character and, frankly, a shallowness in worship. Because worship is directly related to our understanding of truth. And many times we can be unteachable. Well, this morning we have a text before us that talks about some individuals filling in the gaps where God comes along and kind of helps them with some holes in their theological program. It's about the transition here from some Old Testament Jewish mindsets to a New Testament Christian mindset. It's a text about early Jewish believers as well as Old Testament saints growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Peter put it in 2 Peter 3.18. And it is my responsibility as a pastor teacher to help equip you and help fill in some of the programs, even as I have to constantly fill in holes in my program. Now, before we examine the text, I want to frame our subject a bit with some background that is going to be very important. I want you to remember some of God's promises to the Jews, to God's chosen covenant people. You will recall that God chose Abraham and his descendants to be 
a, his special witness people to the world. And we understand biblically that this is a charge that they have temporarily forfeited until the Lord returns to fulfill his unilateral, unconditional, irrevocable promises that he made to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is very different than the bilateral covenant that he made with Moses. And when he discern, uh, when he returns, we know that according to Zechariah 12, he will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. As we read the word of God, we see that there will be a time when a future generation of ethnic Jews will be saved, when they will be restored back to their promised land, when the Messiah King, the Lord Jesus Christ, will establish a messianic earthly kingdom. Now, in the meantime, the Gentile church is the custodian of divine truth. In fact, as we read in Romans 11, for example, we are the wild olive branch that has been grafted into the rich root of the olive tree, that place of privilege enjoyed by the Jews. And that will continue, according to Romans 11, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then after that, Paul tells us that all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, all of that is yet future. Now, unfortunately, there are times that we fall into a trap as Gentiles, having a Gentile bias as we look at Jews even today as as Christians. And Paul warns against this in Romans 11. And many times we can end up going to great lengths as we look at Scripture and try to avoid the normal meaning of Scripture to somehow exclude the promises that God has made to Israel, currently his beloved enemy. And many times we can arm ourselves with a system of interpretation of Bible interpretation that ignores the natural meaning of the language in Scripture and therefore emphatically assert, as many do, the covenantal nullification of ethnic, national, and territorial Israel and all that God has promised for them someday. And it's as though we can end up saying, well, you know, the Jews get all the curses and we're going to get all the blessings. That's a very dangerous trap to fall into, I believe. And so there are many who will insist that God is finished with the Jews, that it's been the Jews have been permanently, not temporarily replaced by the church. And also, it's easy for us as Gentiles to look at all things Jewish and say that when you become a Christian, all of that has to be abandoned, a position that you will see will be refuted today in our text. And hopefully you will see a more compassionate theme that emerges from our text this morning. Now, also, we've got to remember as we think about the Jewish mindset and these new believers, Jewish believers, as well as Gentile believers, but especially the Jews in the early church. We've got to remember that God not only gave them promises originally, but he also gave them his law. He gave them his law to reveal the character of his holiness and to expose to them the fact that they were unable to obey it and therefore drive them to his mercy and his grace that would ultimately be met in the Savior. 
And we can look at the law and see that there were basically three divisions of the law. There was the moral law, which regulated how um, Israel was to love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, mind, soul and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. That's based on the Ten Commandments and so forth. There was secondly, the judicial part of the law that regulated Israel as a theocracy. It regulated their taxes and how to settle disputes and punish criminals, even their standards of dress, dietary restrictions and so on. You will recall that God wanted them to be separate from the pagan people around them and again to be a witness to his glory. And thirdly, there was the ceremonial part of the law that regulated Israel's worship. Now, we know that Christ fulfilled all three of those aspects of the law. He fulfilled the moral law in that he lived a righteous life. Perfectly righteous life required by the law, obeying every standard. He also fulfilled the judicial law in that he paid that penalty on the cross of Calvary. And he even fulfilled the ceremonial law when Christ, the Lamb of God, became the perfect and final sacrifice for sin, became an atonement for sin. So all of the ceremonial regulations that were symbols and pictures that pointed to the coming Messiah that illustrated God's plan of redemption were fulfilled in Christ. It became a reality. He was, shall we say, the incarnation, the personification even of the ceremonial law. Now, with all of this in mind, if you were a Jew living in that day, you would understand that with all of this, it would impact virtually every aspect of your life. Everything that you did. Now, adding to what God had prescribed over the years, their leaders had imposed on them many unnecessary burdens that Jesus called the traditions of men. These were ridiculous regulations that made their life absolutely miserable. So for first century Jewish believers, the implications of all of this was absolutely enormous. Now, some of the attitudes and practices of the new Jewish believers that we read about here in Acts were were perfectly fine. They were consistent with godly principles of living that um, that they were used to. But others needed to be forsaken and others needed to be refined and expanded to fully reflect the truth of Christianity. Now, we have seen by way of review here some of both the good and the bad aspects of Jewish heritage that was being brought into Christianity as we've studied Acts. You will recall in Acts 2, they're still celebrating uh, the day of Pentecost and the church is still meeting in the temple, which interestingly enough was a pattern that continued for many years. In Acts 3, you will recall that Peter and John were still going to the temple to pray at certain prescribed times. In Acts 10, we have the, the vision there where, where God has to drag Peter away from his adamant adherence to the dietary restrictions. And in Acts 11, you have Jewish believers who were profoundly offended that Peter even entered into the household of a Gentile named Cornelius, which was a staggering violation of their traditions. And in Acts 15, of course, there was the conflict over the need for Gentile Christians to basically uh, become a Jewish proselyte, to, to obey the law and to be circumcised. And all of that had to be dealt with. And here in Acts 18, we see that the Apostle Paul has taken a Nazarite vow. That's an interesting thought. And later on in Acts 21, we read that thousands of Jews, the text said, 
had believed, who had believed, were still zealous for the law. And again, we see in Acts 21, Paul undergoing a Jewish ritual of purification uh, with four other men. So, with respect to those unacceptable beliefs that contradicted the principles of the new covenant, breaking from the old and entering into the new was a very difficult thing. Jewish heritage clung to them with tenacity. And again, some of it's okay, some of it's not. And you must remember that the New Testament is a Jewish book. It is written by Jews in a Jewish context. And God is patient with all of this. He understands this and he gradually helps them transition into the new life of Christ. In fact, this is the theme of Paul's instructions in Romans 14 and 15. And likewise, the Holy Spirit used the writer of Hebrews to contrast the imperfect and incomplete provisions of the old covenant with uh, that was given under Moses with the superior and perfect provisions of the new covenant offered by the perfect high priest, the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of this to say, dear friends, you must understand if you're going to understand the book of Acts, that Acts is a book of transition. And many things that occurred during the early days of the church we find are never again replicated anywhere in the New Testament. For example, once the New Testament canon was completed, in other words, when all the revelation of previously unrevealed truths that were authoritative and binding upon the entire body of Christ, when all of that had been written, we see the revelatory gifts of apostleship, prophecy, distinguishing spirits, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. We see all of that gradually disappear. No more need for that. The canon was complete. Likewise, the confirmatory gifts uh, that we see in Acts gradually disappear over time. Gifts like healings. Now, that's not to say God still doesn't heal. Obviously, he does. But the gift of healing, when a person became, when an individual became the specific divine channel for producing a miraculous cure for a physical problem, ultimately for the purpose of confirming and authenticating both the message and the messenger of the gospel, that gradually disappears. The effecting of miracles disappears. You don't see people later on raising others from the dead or or blinding someone in an act of divine judgment. You don't see those powers. The whole issue of tongues and the interpretation of tongues, tongues being the miraculous ability to speak in language, never never acquired by a natural means assigned to unbelievers. You see that begin to disappear. And it's crucial for you to therefore understand that in Acts, when the church is first being established, the Holy Spirit worked in some very unique, albeit temporary ways with respect to salvation. And later, when the church was finally established, he worked differently, consistent with the teachings of the New Testament. Now, one other thing of background here that you need to understand As we look at Acts, we see the church has four distinct groups of people that have to be brought into the fold. We see the Lord bringing the Jews, the Samaritans, the Gentiles all together. And one other very important group that we're going to see today, and that is the Old Testament saints. So today we examine a very precious passage of Scripture 
demonstrating God's patient work of sanctification in the lives of those whom he has saved, particularly in the life of a man named Apollos and 12 other men who were Old Testament Jewish seekers who had not yet become believers in Jesus. And beloved, as we look at the text this morning, I pray that that all of us will marvel at the intimate care and the infinite links that the Lord goes to to grow us all in his grace and knowledge, conforming us into the image of Christ. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Philippians 1, 7. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, the text before us divides itself into three sections very easily, each one of them revealing both the heritage of Judaism and Christianity, as well as the process of transition from Judaism to Christianity. We're going to see, number one, the consecration of Paul, secondly, the education of Apollo, and thirdly, the conversion of Old Testament saints. First of all, notice the consecration of Paul, verse 18. The text says, And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren, and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sincrea he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Now, you will recall that God had blessed the Apostle Paul with the friendship of Priscilla and Aquila. When he came into Corinth, he was all alone. And they were both tent makers, both, uh, both groups here. They were all converted Jews, believers in Christ. And obviously, we see here that this friendship is flourishing. Paul has been there now, we know, a year and a half. And now the three of them are leaving for Syria. And we're going to see that Paul is ultimately desiring to get to Jerusalem by a certain time, probably before the Feast of Passover, to consummate a vow. We will learn more of that in a moment. So this is the final leg of Paul's second missionary journey. But notice the end of verse 18. It says in Sincrea, which, by the way, was the eastern port of Corinth, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. Now, beloved, you must understand that although Paul completely rejected legalistic Judaism and all of its system of works righteousness that perverted uh, the purpose of the law, Paul was still a Jew. Becoming a Christian does not mean that you have to cease being Jewish in a cultural sense, as many times we as Gentiles seem to think. In fact, during the Messianic kingdom, we read that the Lord is going to build a temple and he will reconstitute many distinctly Jewish feasts and sacrifices that will be memorials that look back upon the person in the work of Christ even as we do in the memorial of the Lord's Supper. You can go to Ezekiel and find great detail in this regard. Now, evidently, Paul previously took a Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite vow was a special promise of separation from the world as well as dedication to the Lord. You can read about it at great lengths in Numbers chapter 6. But the word Nazarite literally translates a, or I should say transliterates a Hebrew term meaning dedication by separation. 
And as we understand it biblically, the Nazarite separated himself unto the Lord by separating himself from three primary things, great products, in other words, the drinking of wine, the cutting of one's hair and contact with dead bodies. And the word vow, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew is related to the word wonder, which signifies something that is profound, something that is weighty, something that is intense, something that is of extreme significance. And often these vows were made in the context of some great blessing or some great deliverance that God had performed. And perhaps, even though we don't know for sure, the text would seem to indicate that Paul was honoring God for the profound ways that the Lord had blessed him in Corinth. You will remember the gift of friends that he had given them, the fruitful ministry that we discussed last week, as well as the presence of the Lord when the Lord appeared to him in a vision and told him not to be afraid. Remember, remember he said, I want you to keep on speaking. No one's going to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Now, these vows were taken typically for a specified period of time, usually a month. We don't know for sure how long it was for Paul. However, you might be interested to know that that Samuel and Samson and John the Baptist were Nazarites for life. But when the period of time would come to an end, there would be a a great celebration. And uh, the first Nazarite, first I should say the Nazarite, would shave his head and give that hair at the temple uh, in Jerusalem for a sacrifice. It's interesting. And that was typically done uh, within 30 days of shaving his head. And the high priest's crown, as well as the Nazarite's head, are referred to by the same Hebrew word, which has interesting parallels. In fact, you might want to know that To the ancient Semite, like blood, hair symbolized the life of a person. And in the case of a lifelong Nazarite, like like Samson, the hair symbolized the power of God with which he is endowed. So Paul was determined now to reach Jerusalem to ultimately fulfill his vow since since his days of consecration and praise had ended. By the way, as a footnote... I marvel here at Paul's consecration, at his dedication to the Lord. This really challenges me deeply in a personal way. I mean, he, he really practiced what he preached, didn't he? I mean, I think of, of Romans 12:1, where he said, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And he's just spent 11 chapters describing the mercies of God and the incredible doctrine of justification by grace through faith. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to do what? To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, literally your reasonable, rational, intellectual service of worship. Again, as a footnote here, our motivation for worship is the mercies of God and the deeper our knowledge, the deeper our worship. Worship is not something that is induced by music but rather by our understanding, our grasp of the truth of the mercies of God found in his word. And then when we understand that, what happens? The doxologies of our heart explode into song. Now, we might not take a Nazarite vow. I'm not saying we need to do that. 
but we can commit ourselves to a deep understanding of the mercies of God in Scripture and as a result present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. So in verse 19, they come to Ephesus and the text says he left them there. So Priscilla and Aquila made Ephesus their home here. We know, according to 1 Corinthians 16, 19, that they had a church. The church met there in their home. And a few later, a few years later, we know that they returned to their original home in Rome, from which they had been banished because of their faith earlier under the reign of Claudius. Now, in the end of verse 19, we read, now he himself, referring to Paul, entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail for Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Notice he went up and then he went down. Went up is a reference to going up to Jerusalem. And undoubtedly, that's when he went to present his hair, to fulfill his vow and so forth. And then we see him coming back down to Antioch. Again, you always ascend up to Jerusalem because of the topography of the land. It is on Mount Zion. So he goes up to Jerusalem and he comes back down to Antioch. And what a joyous reunion that must have been because that was his home church from which he had originally been sent. He's traveled now about 1,500 miles, dear friends. Can you imagine the things that he has encountered that we are not privy to? But just think of the things that we are privy to that astound us. Verse 23, and after having spent some time there, he departed and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And here... Luke lays the groundwork in describing the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. I remember when I was thinking this text through and living, living with it, somehow the Energizer bunny came to mind. I know that's not, not, not very, um, very profound, but you get the idea. I mean, this guy never runs out of energy. He, he just keeps going and going and going, never runs out of power. He's indefatigable. He is untiring. He is unrelenting. And what an example he is to all of us. So we've seen the consecration of Paul, but next Luke recounts the education of Apollo. Notice verse 24. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth. Alexandria, by the way, is located in Egypt. It says that he was an eloquent man. He came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. Scriptures in the original language, uh, graphius is a term that is always used in the New Testament to refer to the Old Testament scriptures. And we see here that he was eloquent. Lagios, it refers to uh, one who is learned, one who is scholarly, one who is well read. So this was uh, a very scholarly master of the art of oratory. And it says that he was mighty, mighty in the scriptures, mighty. Uh, dunatos in the original language is related to the Greek word dunamis, and we get our word dynamite from that. So you put all of this together and we understand that Apollos was a brilliant Old Testament scholar, a preacher and a debater, a scholar and a communicator. That's a very rare combination. Now notice how Luke goes on to describe him. In verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. 
Now we pause here for a moment. You must understand that the way of the Lord is an Old Testament phrase describing one's deep understanding of the spiritual and moral standards that the Lord had delineated in the Old Testament. But although Apollos was a recipient of saving grace, although he was like, shall we say, uh, Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, as we read in Romans 4, 3. In other words, he was justified by grace through faith. Nevertheless, Apollos was not yet a Christian in the true sense of the term. But he was, in verse 25, fervent in spirit. In other words, he was passionate. He was zealous for God. And it says he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. In other words, he would have understood what John the Baptist preached concerning a coming Messiah. He would have understood that John had even proclaimed that Jesus of Nazareth was was the Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, that he was the Lamb of God. But we see here that his understanding, nevertheless, was still deficient. He had some holes in his program. And like John the Baptist, who was martyred before Jesus' death and resurrection and the glorious manifestation of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Apollos probably knew nothing about those amazing events. He didn't understand the significance of those events with respect to the gospel of grace in the church and the body of Christ. And so isn't it fascinating how God graciously makes provision for his spiritual understanding? Notice verse 26. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is such a precious scene, isn't it? Can't you imagine this? I mean, this guy is pouring out his heart and he's saying all of the right things. But Priscilla and Aquila are realizing that, you know what? He there's some things that he doesn't understand yet. And, and if he knew this, he could have those holes filled in. And so isn't it interesting? God uses this this godly Christian couple. I mean, they, these are just simple, common, ordinary folks. They're, they're lowly, poor tent makers. But yet they're wise in New Testament truth. They had been friends and obviously disciples of the Apostle Paul. He uses them now to lovingly approach the, this eminent Old Testament scholar, this eloquent preacher, and the text doesn't say it, but I would imagine they said, you know, we would love to get to know you better. Would you would you like to come over to our our tent or wherever they lived? And and we'd love to just break some bread with you and share some things with you. And so they take him aside and it says, explain the way of God more accurately. Is it an interesting here? The way of God is found in only in the New Testament, that phrase, and it's used by Jewish leaders that were trying to trap Jesus by asking him a loaded question pertaining to paying taxes to Caesar. And ultimately what they were trying to do is trap him with respect to his claim to deity. And so here we have this this couple coming and explaining more about the deity and the lordship of Christ and obviously about all that had happened subsequent to what John knew and what John had taught him. And what a great example of humility that we see here in Apollos. 
A man who was willing to learn. A man who was teachable. A man who was gracious. Now, knowing the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, we see that Apollos is better equipped. He's more fully informed. And he understands now fully the magnificent truths of the gospel of grace. And in verses 27 and 28, we read, when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. What a remarkable transition this is from an Old Testament to a New Testament saint. I look forward to meeting Apollos one day. In fact, there are those who believe, and they very well could be right, that Apollos was the author of Hebrews. We don't know that for sure, but I look forward to meeting him. And I also look forward to meeting Priscilla and Aquila. Won't that be a grand reunion someday? Well, let's examine one final conversion from the old covenant to the new to the new that demonstrates once again God's loving concern for his own to grow them in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. We've witnessed the consecration of Paul and the education of of Apollos. Now, finally, let's look at the conversion of 12 Old Testament saints. Again, chapter 19, we read that verse one, that it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. So here, beloved, we see that that Paul does return to Ephesus as he promised. And when he comes there, he discovers some disciples. In Greek, it's mathetes. And this refers to a learner. Or it could be translated a follower. But I want you to understand, and you'll learn why in a moment, this term does not always describe a genuine believer. In fact, many times the same term is used to describe a false disciple. In fact, you will recall in John 6, when the Lord Jesus was describing the glorious truths of God's sovereignty and salvation, and and the people rejected all of that, as is typically the case even today. You will read in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples, Matthetes, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now, obviously, we see here that Paul did not automatically assume that these disciples were true believers. Evidenced by his question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And of course, they say, no, we don't. We never heard the Holy Spirit. What's that? You see, this indicates that these were Old Testament saints, but not yet Christians. Again, in the truest sense of the term, they knew nothing about the spirit who came at Pentecost. And obviously other relevant truths pertaining to Jesus' death and resurrection. They, like 
Apollos were disciples of John the Baptist. They had been baptized, it says in verse 3, into John's baptism. And that is different than into the baptism of Jesus Christ and into his name. So Paul did to these 12 Old Testament saints what Priscilla and Aquila did to, or I should say, with Apollos. He filled in the blanks of their deficient understanding of the gospel of Christ. And so he explains in verse four that John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. And obviously these men did not know that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed their Messiah and all of the truths that would go along with that. So understanding the full scope of the gospel of, of, of grace we read in verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Baptism, again, is, the, is a, a public identification with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. They understand this now, and they do this publicly. No doubt there were others around that watched this, and they were saying to the world that I identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then we see here in the text, in a typical act of apostolic affirmation and fellowship, Paul welcomes these Old Testament saints into the universal church, the body of Christ. Verse 6 says he lays hands on them and they begin speaking with tongues and prophesying. Now, I need to digress here for a moment and explain this whole issue of speaking in tongues and prophesying. Because, unfortunately, this can be a very divisive thing in the body of Christ. And I have people that I love that will differ with me on this point. But I want to share with you what I believe the scriptures teach here. Unfortunately, there are those who insist that this text would indicate that there is a thing called a second blessing that needs to occur after salvation. That after you're saved, something else needs to occur. Namely, you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and that will be evidenced by your speaking in tongues. And their definition of speaking in tongues is different than what we see in the Bible. Their definition is basically kind of this ecstatic, um, meaningless gibberish rather than pro proclaiming gospel truths in languages that had not previously been known by these individuals, which was a sign and testimony to unbelievers like we see in Acts 2. But this assertion of a second blessing is, I believe, a dangerous heresy that needs to be refuted biblically. And I would humbly offer four considerations, and there are others um, that, that we could give, but I, I think these four kind of fit in with the text before us. First of all, such a view this idea of a second blessing fails to take into consideration what I've been preaching to you this morning. And that is the transitional nature of the book of Acts, whereby there are many unique scenarios and unique phenomena that occur that are never again repeated. We never see them again repeated anywhere in the New Testament. And therefore, they should not be considered as normative to the church. Secondly, I believe this view wrongly assumes that these disciples were already born again Christians, an assumption not shared by Paul, as I've already explained. And thirdly, I believe that such a position contradicts the explicit teaching of the New Testament epistles that unequivocally state that anyone without the Holy Spirit is unsaved. 
We see this in Romans chapter eight and verse nine and in verse 19 of Jude. And also it contradicts what the scriptures teach that say that every Christian receives the spirit of God the very moment that they are transformed by his power. We see that in texts such as 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Ephesians 1, 13, and so on. You see, Paul's understanding, dear friends, of these essential truths were literally the basis of his discernment pertaining to their spiritual condition. When he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? One commentator, David Williams, adds some further insight I would like to share with you with respect to Paul's penetrating question. He says, and I quote, Paul's criterion for what distinguished the Christian is significant. So, too, is the way in which his question is framed. It implies that the Holy Spirit is received at a definite point in time and that the time is the moment of initial belief. And by the way, exegetically, he defends that by saying, quote, the aorist participle, pistiuasantes, being construed here as coincidental with the verb elebete. And then he goes on to say the same thought is expressed, for example, in Ephesians 1.13. And this is a significant text here. There we read, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 1.13. And Williams goes on to say, no space of time is envisaged between the two events, nor is the possibility entertained of believing without also receiving the, quote, seal of the spirit. Beloved, if I can remind you of an essential doctrinal truth, as you understand salvation and the regenerating work of the spirit of God, you must understand that it is the Holy Spirit that is the agent of regeneration. We see this in John 3, 8. We see it in Titus 3, 5. Regeneration is that instantaneous supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. I mean, you're not saved unless the Spirit of God does that. In Romans 8, 9, we read that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He does not belong to him. It's very clear. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I quote, If when you believed, you had not a life imparted by the Holy Spirit, your believing was a dead believing, the mere counterfeit of living faith, and not the faith of God's elect. Now bear with me with the old English of 150 years ago, but he goes on to say, If the Holy Ghost has not been with you since your conversion... Every act of your religion has been formal, dead, and unaccepted. In vain have you tuned your formal songs. In vain have you attempted to adore. Your hosannas have languished on your tongues and your devotion has fallen like a corpse before the altar. If the Holy Ghost is not there, life is not there. Your many prayers have been mockeries. Your joys have been delusions. Your griefs have been carnal. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and nothing better. Let the flesh be washed and cleansed. Yet all that comes of its flesh, only that which is born of the spirit is spirit. There must then be a work from heaven, a work of the Holy Ghost upon the heart, or else you have not believed into unto life and you still abide in death. End quote. 
Now, there's one final consideration that I would offer to you. And I mentioned it a bit, a little bit earlier. There is a fascinating reoccurring theme in Acts that may help us understand this particular, I believe, errant and potentially divisive doctrine of a second blessing. There are four Pentecosts in Acts. And I say Pentecost, quote, unquote. There's really only one, but you will see the similarities to three others. We see this recorded in the book of Acts. Four Pentecosts whereby the Holy Spirit descends upon a group of individuals, not individuals themselves, but a group of individuals, not any single individual. And it's interesting, as we look at these for a moment here in in conclusion this morning, never were any of these people instructed on how to receive the Holy Spirit. They were only instructed on how to receive Christ. We see this initially with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and then secondly, the Samaritans, then the Gentiles, and as we've seen today, the Old Testament saints. Four very distinct groups that had to be gathered into the fold of the church, each of them requiring a supernatural affirmation of their faith so that there would be no disputing among others with respect to their salvation. Four Pentecosts. You see the first one in Acts 2. That's when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church originally on the day of Pentecost, when a time when an offering of first fruits was made. And there the significance is so profound. The Holy Spirit came on that day as the first fruits of the believer's inheritance, as well as falling on these believers who were the first fruits of the full harvest of saints, of believers that would come thereafter. And there, it's interesting, verse 38 of Acts 2, Peter promised those who repented, those who repented, what, do, what would they get? They would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A second Pentecost is in Acts 8. That's when the Samaritans as a group were saved. And because of the profound hatred that the Jews had towards the Samaritans, who were considered half-breed Jews, and in order for the Samaritans to understand that they needed to submit themselves to the authority of the apostles, the Holy Spirit was delayed until the apostles arrived. And then, dear friends, in the presence of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, where they could all see it, the Holy Spirit descends upon the Samaritans, leaving no doubt that they too would be brought into the fold. Again, affirmed by their speaking in tongues. And then again, a third one is in Acts 10, a third Pentecost. The same dynamic was in place with respect to the Gentiles who were saved when Cornelius and his household came to a saving knowledge of Christ. Again, proving to the Jews that the gospel of grace was not only for them as well as the Samaritans, but also for the Gentiles as a people. And now here in Acts 19, one final group had to receive that affirmation, namely the Old Testament saints who knew only the baptism of the last of the Old Testament prophets, who was John the Baptist. And so we have four very distinct groups that had to be gathered into the fold. And so, again, this the Holy Spirit with the Old Testament saints was delayed until they understood the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they did, we see the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues. And I would submit to you again on the basis of the exegesis of this text and others that this is not ecstatic gibberish. 
Paul condemned that in first Corinthians 14, where he made a distinction between emotional gibberish by using the singular of the word tongue in the original language with the true gift of tongues, various languages where he used the plural of the word tongues. But these people spoke in languages other than their own, a miraculous sign of what God had done, of the new birth in them. And now they were able to extol the glories of God to others and thus validate the message as well as the messenger. And so now what we see, beloved, is the the Jews and the Samaritans and the Gentiles and the Old Testament saints have all been brought into the fold, into the universal church, validated by the Holy Spirit descending upon them. And what's interesting is from this point on, from this point on, the Holy Spirit would enter every individual heart at the moment of salvation. Consistent with the teaching of the New Testament epistles. And for this reason, the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4, there's only one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Oh, child of God, what a glorious Savior we have in Christ Jesus. What a glorious Savior. And may each of us consecrate ourselves To live consistent with the truths that we know with respect to God's mercy in our life. Consecrate ourselves as Paul did. Maybe short of the Nazarite vow. But consecrate ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. And rejoice knowing that it is the power of the Spirit of God that will do to us as he did to Apollos and these Old Testament saints. And that is, fill in the holes in our program to gradually help us understand the truths of the Word of God so that we can live them out more fully, so that we can worship the Lord more deeply in spirit and in truth, the emotion regulated by the objective truth of the Word of God. And may I plead with those of you who have yet to embrace Christ as Savior, may I say to you that you must humble yourself before the Lord today as Savior, or someday you will be humbled before Him as judge. So I plead with you as a minister of the gospel to hear that you are lost and dying in your sins. And unless you repent, you will forever be separated from God. Repent and believe before it is too late. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for the truths that emerge from your word whenever we immerse ourselves in it. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us all to take what we have learned today so that we can not only understand more fully how we should live, but, Lord, so that we can understand how much more deeply we need to worship you and praise you for what you have done in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.